The title of today's sermon is The Super Righteous Shuffle, and it's taken from Matthew 6, verses 1 through 4. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for the blessings of life. We pray for those, Father, who have needs this morning. We think of those who are hurting. I pray for my, my brother Bill Thomas. I pray, Lord, that you would bless his life with many blessings. Give him a good spirit, Lord. Help him to face the future with a positive attitude, trusting in you. I pray for my brother Roly and Helen as they go back to visit with mom, Rosita. I pray, Lord, that you would give them joy and peace. Help them to help Rosita as she faces an eternity uh, coming quickly. I thank you, Lord, for Shirley, my mother-in-law. Thank you for her recovery. I pray, Lord, for her strength. Now for us, I pray that you would guide us, direct us. May your Holy Spirit speak to us through your word. For it's in Christ's name that I pray. Amen. Back in 1965, the Chicago Bears reached the plateau of the National Football League. They won their one and only Super Bowl. It was a very very exciting time for Bears fans. The run-up to the game was accompanied by a lot of television appearances by team members such as The Fridge, Walter Payton, Jim McMahon. But the one thing that they did as a group was the production of a video called the Super Bowl Shuffle. Got a lot of airtime. Maybe you remember it. If not, this will refresh your memory. Lights?
hit the turf, I've got no plan. I just throw my body all over the field. I can't dance, but I can throw the field. I motivate the cats I like to tease. I play so cool, I aim to please. That's why you all got here on the double to catch me doing the Super Bowl shuffle. A mama's boy, Otis, wanna be kind. The ladies are looking for my body and my mind. I'm flick on the floor as I can be. But ain't no something gonna get past me. Some guys are jealous of my style and class. That's why I'm so in your own that. I didn't come here looking for trouble. I'm just getting down to the Super Bowl shuffle. Fun. That's just awesome, isn't it? Does anybody know why they made this video? One person, according to the video, they did it to feed the needy of Chicago. Now, helping your fellow man is a wonderful thing to do. But do you think people really like this video because of helping the needy? I don't think so. I think they liked it because of the world-famous athletes singing and dancing and well, just basically making fools of themselves. I think the people enjoyed the video simply because they were enamored with the 1995 or 1985 Chicago Bears team, which was filled with a lot of personalities, as you could see. As you watch this video, the attention on the needy was only in one very small segment. Did we just lose a light? It begs the question. That begs the question, why does anyone do good things? Why do benevolent acts or good works? Is it to draw attention to oneself, the video? Or is it really to help others? I believe a lot of acts that are done that are good are to draw attention to oneself. Look at what a good person I really am. The question or motive for doing good is very important. It's examined in the text that we look at this morning. Now, as you know, for the past few Sundays, we've been examining the oral traditions of the Jews, as expressed by the rabbis and believed by the scribes and the Pharisees. They taught the oral tradition rather than the actual premises found in the Law of Moses. They fit the Law of Moses to their desires, if you will. Jesus describes their teaching as hypocritical. He will now continue in his evaluation of the teaching of the scribes and the Pharisees by indicting the elites this morning. He will contrast their fake righteousness with true godly righteousness. You'll recall in chapter 5, the controlling verse for the whole Sermon on the Mount was put forth in verse 20, where the Lord said to his disciples, Unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. You see, the righteousness of his subjects in the coming kingdom must be beyond anything religious people practice. That righteousness that Jesus speaks of cannot be produced by human efforts, no matter how many Super Bowl shuffles we do. The righteousness that Jesus speaks of is only obtained through him, through his person, 
and his works. Now, as we move into this next chapter, chapter 6, as you know, the Sermon on the Mount is found in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. We're in the midst of it, the middle of it, if you will. And the Lord's focus will move from the aberrant teaching of the oral traditions, and it will focus more on their aberrant practices. Jesus presents a new and a radical approach to living one's faith in God. As I've noted previously, the scribes and the Pharisees were considered the the epitome of the righteous standard required by Yahweh. The Jewish people viewed them as the top of the food chain, the hierarchy of those who came close to God. They scrupulously observed the law of Moses, at least as they understood it. Now, we should not misunderstand Jesus here. He's not reputing the piety of any well-meaning Jew. Rather, he is regulating the performance of righteousness. Instead of keeping the law for the approval of men, our good works should be done for the approval of God. Jesus figuratively in this text, takes off his royal crown and sets it down, and he dons the priestly garb of his office. And when he does this, he is able to compare fake righteousness against true righteousness. Now, it's important for us to remember who the audience here is. Unlike what was pictured in the video, which is just an introduction to our topic, The audience that Jesus is speaking to is really his disciples. He's teaching his disciples who have gathered around him, not a group of people who were just hanger-oners or antagonists. He was speaking directly to his disciples, and he was also speaking to all future disciples that will inhabit the church age, you and me, But more importantly, he was speaking to the subjects of his coming millennial kingdom. Jesus zeroes in on the three essential good works of any worshiper of Yahweh. There there is almsgiving, prayer, and fasting. And of course, these three were central to the Jewish faith. These good works should also be produced within the disciple of Jesus Christ but done so properly. So then, the issue is not whether we should do these good works or not, but how we do them and why we do them. Well, with that as our introduction, would you open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6, and we begin with verse 1. You can find this text if you need to use the P, the P Bible, the Pew Bible, which is in front of you on page 963. 963 in our Pew Bible. Jesus begins by questioning the practice of fake righteousness amongst the Jewish elites. He says to his gathered disciples, Beware! Beware of practicing your righteousness before men, to be noticed by them. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. Notice the warning here. He introduces it with this admonishment to beware. The word literally means to think constantly about this. Now, if you've brought your 
Greek glasses with you? You can put those on right now. And notice the warning that we find here written in the Greek present tense. That emphasizes the point that the disciple is to be consistently on the alert for any temptation to parade one's good works before men. The Greek word translated here as beware is, as you can see on the screen behind me, prosesho, and it's primarily focused on the motive of the performance of the good deed. This is the lexical definition on the screen behind me. The disciple is to be continually in a state of recognition of the danger to miss the reason for doing one's good work. Jesus isn't condemning good works at all in this text. He is simply questioning the motive of the one who does the good works, whether it is done for the right or the wrong reasons. Jesus asked the disciples why they do this or do that. What's the inner impulse for doing good works? So it's a question of motive. The Lord makes it quite clear that works of righteousness are not between one man and another. The doing of righteousness is a matter between God and man. Therefore, to put one's good works on display before others is to even invalidate any value of it. Now, the word that's translated here in Greek as righteousness is dikosinen, from which we get our word deacon. The Jewish understanding of righteousness was highly influenced by the Hebrew word that's used to translate it in the Old Testament, zeta chi, which is understand, understood in the Old Testament as righteousness or almsgiving. So he's speaking of righteousness, but it has the uh, idea behind it of giving to the poor, of almsgiving. The Pharisees would attract attention to themselves by parading their righteousness through almsgiving before others. All the while, they masqueraded their true motives, which was to, as Jesus says here in this verse, to be noticed by men. By the way, the, the Greek word there that's translated as be noticed is Theamia, T-H-E-A-M-I-A-I. It's from, the, it's from that word that we get our, our English word, theatrical. These hypocrites, remember what a hypocrite is? is someone who puts on a mask. One minute you're comedic and the next minute you're, you're in drama. That's what hypocrite means. These hypocrites were play acting, putting on a show. They were parading their fake righteousness before others. Their motive was flawed. They were hypocrites. They were actors who were changing their masks for different roles. Here the Pharisees wore the masks of being generous souls, givers to the poor, playing up the theatrics of it before others. They gave Oscar-worthy performances. But Jesus teaches his disciples that we must give to the poor by giving sincerely, from the heart. We glorify God rather than our own self-interests. That's why the Pharisees were fakes, hypocrites, phonies. They only did good to be recognized by other people. Their motives were flawed. In chapter 6, 
we have three examples of performing true righteousness as juxtaposed against false or fake righteousness. Here, the first example is that of giving. The example of giving to the poor, also called almsgiving. Its value in eternity is based on the motive of the giver. Does the generosity of the almsgiver glorify God or self? We must recognize that there is a world of difference between godly piety and self-promotion. Now, it's sad for me to admit, but there's a lot that takes place in the church that is simply self-promotion. However, I'm not Jesus, and you aren't either, and it's difficult to discern the motives of others. But not so of the results. The motive gives glory to God, but self-promotion gives glory to the performer. More importantly, the result determines the difference in reward for the disciple. Jesus speaks to this in the parable of the talents, maybe you'll recall that, in which monies were given to each of these different disciples, and their Give, their doing determined the results of the use of those talents. Obviously, the disciples received rewards for doing more with the talents that were given to them than less, based upon the motive that they had and the degree of return or the result. The loss of reward will be for those who seek the recognition of men rather than the glory of God. Jesus affirms this in this verse when he says, For there is no reward with your Father who is in heaven for those who have false motives. Interesting, interestingly, Matthew refers to the Father 17 times in this portion of the Sermon on the Mount. He is identifying for the Jewish listener that God the Father is the primary primary focus for the Jews, those who are under the law. Jesus emphasizes this relationship to make it as relevant as he possibly can through Matthew to the listener of his sermon. They believed in a works righteousness, And that was demonstrated clearly by the acts of the Pharisees, who did their good works, their righteousness for men, to be seen by them rather than for God in heaven. Jesus' disciples are not to seek the approval of men, but of God. Now the truth is, all of us who are his disciples fall from time to time into hypocritical behavior. Jesus exhorts us in this text to genuineness, to sincerity, to transparency, because God can see through any facade that we might put up anyway. The problem of self-righteousness is that it demonstrates to others in a way that is oftentimes non-detectable. But God knows! Let me give you an example of that. Do you remember Ananias and Sapphira in the book of Acts? We have their behavior, their result, and their reward contrasted in the book of Acts with that of Barnabas. Both Barnabas and Ananias and Sapphira gave monies to the church from land that they had sold that they owned. 
What made the difference in their reward was their attitude and actions. Was it wrong for them? Both of them gave it openly. Was it wrong for them to do so? Should they have given their money anonymously? I don't think that is true. From a clear reading of the text in the book of Acts, it's not true. What made the difference in the monies that Barnabas gave from the sale of land and that of Ananias and Sapphira was the motive behind their giving and also their doing. The difference lies in the motive and the manner of giving. Barnabas gave his money out of a genuine concern for the welfare of the poor in the city of Jerusalem and in the church of Jesus Christ. That's contrasted with Ananias and Sapphira who gave their money for men to see and observe and to slap them on the back and tell them how really spiritual they are. When Barnabas gave, he gave what he said he was giving. When Ananias and Sapphira gave, they lied about the amount. Therefore, the disciples of Jesus Christ must do their service to God, their righteous acts, their good works with the right motives in order to glorify God rather than self. If you serve out of self-interest, you will be rewarded with the chastisement of God, the loss of reward. Oh, you'll get the praise of men, but you'll lose standing before the Lord. All future reward can be forfeited by doing good works with false motives and manner. The religious show-offs will get their kudos here and now, but will lose their true reward there and then. Notice the example in verse 2 of giving. Jesus says, and when, and when, and when you give to the poor, do not sound a trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and the streets, so that you may be honored by men. Truly, truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. Again, this is spoken to his disciples who are under the paradigm of the law at this time, not under grace, that hasn't come yet. The law has a very rigid and specific paradigm for giving. Most modern churchgoers believe that we are to give 10% of our incomes to God. They base this on the false teaching of preachers from the pulpits that this example to Israel in the Old Testament said 10% was sufficient to please God. Well, that's at odds not only with grace giving, as taught by Paul in 1 Corinthians, but also the teaching of the Old Testament itself. Now, there were many offerings to to be given over and above the tithing, if you will, of 10%. So there's a question in this text of doing, a question of doing. How am I to give my offerings to God? What is required? What is voluntary? Jews were required to give two specific offerings, the sin offering and the trespass offering. But there were numerous other voluntary offerings that they could and should give. There was burnt offerings, grain offerings, drink offerings, peace offerings, and wave offerings. The result was this. The average Jew who gave the required offerings and the voluntary offerings, gave between 23 
and 27% of their income to God. How do you match up with that, my dear ones? If you want to follow the tithe of the Old Testament, you need to get giving. Now let me be clear. It was the sacrificial system through, through which grace was distributed to God's people, the Jews, by God, not by their giving. The debt that would be fully paid by Christ on the cross at Calvary. But that had not yet come. They pleased God by their obedience to him as believers. Now looking back on our verse, notice it begins with the word when. W-H-E-N. By this, Jesus is telling us that he assumes that we're going to be giving monies. Did I say something? Everybody's leaving. Now this giving, when we give, is not just to be given to anybody. We're not to feed the world or the needy of Chicago. The Bible's very clear. We are to feed our brothers and sisters in Christ, those who are needy within the community in which we live. At this time, the community was Jews. The church is to take care of those within the body of Christ. Almsgiving for the Jews were collected as a religious and a civic duty to meet the needs of the Jewish people. There was no government to redistribute wealth. There were no entitlements. You just didn't go down to the Social Security office and sign up for Medicare or anything else. So this giving spoken of here to the poor was over and above the tithes and offerings that were given. Jesus gives the key to how we are to understand this when he warns his disciples to do this. Don't sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and the streets. This practice of blowing their horn or making a noise so that people would see their righteous acts originated from the temple. You see the noise that they're talking about here in the trumpet? That came from coins rattling down, winding its way down, one of the 13 receptacles that were outside the court of the men for their offerings to support the temple. These receptacles were shaped like trumpets. Each contained a, each one had a different designated purpose to support. Into one of these receptacles, or many of them, the hypocrites, the Pharisees, would come and they'd pour their many coins into the trumpet, and as it rattled down, all in the temple could hear that noise and they would look to see who was giving all of that money. Now, we know from the example that Jesus gives of the poor widow. Remember, she gave two mites. How did they know that? 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 You could tell by the noise the difference in coins that were being given by the noise that they made. When people heard the tiny rattle, of the two mites, they knew that's what she gave. But when the blowhards, the hypocrites, the Pharisees came and they dumped in their many shekels and larger denominations, they were all taken aback at the giving of these righteous, pious men. Aren't they wonderful? 
These hypocrites did it to be seen, Jesus says, and this shows their motive. They wanted to be honored by men. They were literally publicizing, parading their good works before others. Can you see it? Can you just picture it in your mind? These prideful Pharisees in their wonderful outfits striding up to the trumpet and slowly dropping each and many of their coins into the trumpet, spacing it out so that the rattle would continue throughout the temple and everyone would see it. What a great performance! The the men were wearing masks of hypocrisy, for it was done to be seen. Jesus will later compare them to whitewashed tombs on the inside. We often wear masks to church. We come pretending to be happy when we're miserable. We come pretending to be well when we're ill. We all wear masks to some degree. The mask of the hypocrite is a false outward sign of an inward disposal to sin. The term hypocrite Jesus uses here speaks of actors on a stage changing masks. The Pharisees, they put on a great show. Jesus says they did it here in the synagogues, the temple, and in the streets. They did it in the synagogue by delivering wonderful prayers and long speeches. Flowery words dressed up to impress the illiterates around them. And on the streets, they did it by wearing expensive, distinctive, beautifully colored robes that stuck out amongst the plainness of the regular folks. The people gushed over them. They admired the blue, beautiful tassels on their holy robes, and they called them righteous men. But Jesus said that his disciples should give alms with sincerity. And now he says they should give secretly rather than going out into the public and giving a show. Give in secret so that no one knows what you gave. The Lord says, truly, truly, I say to you, they have their reward already. Now, the Greek word that's used here for reward, (coughs) excuse me, sorry, apikin, was usually the word that was written on a bill when the payment was made in full. So the statement could be translated, truly, truly, they have received their payment in full. Over the years, I've taught on rewards at Lacey Chapel and in other places, and the motivation for the disciples' service. It's usually suggests that service be done for reward from the Lord. And many people have uh, chafed at that, that, oh, I serve the Lord because I love him. Well, the Lord Jesus himself says that we should serve the Lord to receive, a reward, to receive the reward. Jesus says here, truly, truly, I say to you, he's emphasizing, he's underscoring the fact of the veracity of his words. And in fact, he uses that same phrase 32 times in the Gospel of Matthew the purpose to assure his listeners that this is really, really important. It's really, really important for you to understand one of our motivations for service to the Lord is to receive his reward. Every Jew would have understood this. 
But as we make our way through this text, we cannot not help but notice again and again how important the rewards are for serving God with the right motives. So his desire is for us to understand rewards in the Christian life. As an aside, let me say this. If we removed all rewards and all punishments from the time to come, that would, ex- that would remove the character trait of God as being a just God. It's totally irrational and unreasonable to think that God will treat all of his children exactly the same, whether or not they have been good or bad in their lives following salvation. Obviously, the reward and punishment system is set up to encourage us to be obedient rather than not. Now, just think about it for a moment. If we eliminated all rewards and punishments, then the Lord could not be a just God. For as a child of a parent or as a parent of a child... When we grew up in our homes, didn't we have a reward and a punishment system? When we did as we were told and we brought home A's on a report card, didn't we get rewarded? When we didn't take out the garbage and it was overflowing out in the backyard because we failed to do the one responsibility God, our Father gave us, did not we get punished? A father who loves his children uses a reward system. He rewards and punishes those that are are his. If we desire to be godly, then we must recognize that there is a quid pro quo in the Christian life. We are not rewarded with salvation. We are rewarded because of salvation. We are not punished because of our lack of faith or trust in God, we are punished because we reject God. Rewards and punishments are part of the Christian life. Now, this does not mean that we are to seek material blessing or prosperity. That would be a sinful motivation. No, Jesus has promised that he gives to each of us a reward at the end of our lives. And he promises that he will punish those that disobey him. Jesus said that if the world hated him, that the world would hate you. So this punishment and reward system oftentimes is misunderstood. If we desire to be godly in this present world, we will suffer. Now to some, that doesn't seem like a reward, does it? The Bible promises that those who are obedient in this life will suffer with trials and tribulations and persecutions and even death. God never promised us a rose garden in this life. He promised us in the life to come that that's when we will be rewarded for our faithfulness. Now, some Christians get it backwards. They think because they've trusted in Christ that their life should be a rose garden, that all things should be good, that I shouldn't suffer or go through trials in this life. Well, my dear ones, we will suffer. For those who want to live godly, you will suffer persecution, says Timothy. Or says Paul to Timothy. Our Lord Jesus in just a few chapters will instruct these same disciples this. Do not store up for yourselves treasure on earth. 
but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Why are you making so much noise? Be quiet. Obviously, if our focus is on storing up treasures in heaven, then we will seek rewards and we will live according to God's word. We will be like a child of the Father, expecting his rewards and punishments for the behavior that we exhibit in this life. Now, one mistake, though, is to make God into an accountant. Don't turn God into an accountant nor an ATM machine. There's not a score sheet or credit debit balance being held in the heavenlies. We are told that our Lord is a loving Father, a gracious God, and he will go way beyond all that we ask or think in his system of rewarding us. So we're not to be like the hypocrites. We should not seek to get. Our desire should be driven by a love for God, but we should seek the rewards that God offers us in the right way, with the right attitudes. And so the Lord Jesus says in verse 3, but when you give to the poor, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. We're not supposed to be consciously thinking about the reward, but about doing God's will and pleasing him and loving him. Notice that the verse begins with a but. That's an adversative. Yes, you're right, that is a big but. The assumption of the Lord is that the disciples will help those that are needy in their midst. For he says, when you give for a second time. We're expected to give to those around us who need help, that need a hand up in the body of Christ. That's the expectation. But when you do it, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. The disciple, in effect, is to forget what he's given to the needy. We're not supposed to keep accounts. We're not given loans. Expect and repayment. We're not supposed to go around telling others about how much good we did for someone else because we gave them 10 bucks or whatever the case may be. This means we are to do it in secret. Now, please, I'm a literalist, but we're not supposed to take this literally either. This is a figure of speech. This is a metaphor which says our good works are to be done in secret in order to glorify God. When you've gone out and tell, told everybody your good works, whatever that is, your righteousness, what group you're serving, how many hours you toiled for the Lord, how many people you led to Christ, you've lost your reward already. You're not supposed to be seen by people, but by God. Notice the emphasis here is on a personal relationship between God and the disciple. He says, when you give to the poor, not when Pastor Scott gives to the poor or Elder Dave gives to the poor, but when you, this is a personal responsibility for each of us, we are called upon by God to take care of those in the body of Christ. So the question is, are you? There's a dark line being drawn here between the behavior of the hypocrite, like the Pharisees who, seem, who seek the limelight, and the disciples who do it quietly and sincerely for the Lord. Well, let me ask you, what kind of reward are you seeking in the time to come? A full reward? Or just a tiny little one? Are you going to be satisfied to live for the rest of eternity with a smidgen of reward? I know those people who say, oh, I'll just be glad to get in there. 
I'm just hoping to get in. That is the complete wrong attitude. As a disciple of Jesus Christ, we are to seek to give our best to the Master. To take this one life we've been given and live it for Jesus Christ every moment and do it according to his instructions. Not our thinking. Our thinking's flawed and failed. Do you want a small reward? Or do you want a full, complete reward? The reward you will receive there and then in the kingdom will depend upon your choices here and now. The life you live here and now will determine the life that you live there and then. I thought I'd get a response there, like an amen, or did you guys forget how to say amen? Did you forget how to say amen? That's a scolding. Did you forget how to say amen? The life that you live here and now will determine your life there and then. Another chance. There you go. So the Lord repeats himself in verse 4. So that your giving will be in public, right? Secret. I went to see Michael Card on Friday. It was at a SDA church in Chehalis. Had a wonderful time. My favorite, favorite Christian singer. All his words of his songs are taken directly from Scripture or allusions to it. He's done a trilogy on the Old Testament, a trilogy on the New Testament, and then he's taken individual books and spoken to them a song. If you were in my study class on Hebrews, you'll remember I mentioned a couple of them while we were going through the book. Anyway, the, the, the dilemma was, how much, do I give money to support this to an SDA church? You know, Seventh-day Adventist. They don't, they don't really think like us in certain areas. But I was so blessed that I gave $100. Oh, I just lost my reward. I gave money to them, not because of what they did or who they were, but because of what God did through me and my heart and my motive. But I did it in secret. What I really liked about the way that they, after I thought about it, they had this little bag on a thing, and the people stuck their hand in and gave their money. I stuck my hand in there and took some out. No, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't. No, I'm just kidding. You couldn't see what anybody gave. Do you ever try when the plate goes by and see... What did Bud give there? What, what, what did Dave give there? Did you ever do that? It's, it's natural for human beings. Is that a 20? Did you ever do that? I know you all have. Come on. Be honest. Be truthful. I like that. Giving in secret. So that no one can know. The Lord's desire is that your service, your righteous acts, your good works be done in order to glorify him. And your reward will be commensurate with that. There is no place in the church of Jesus Christ for plaques on the wall about someone's good deeds. That, they've gotten their reward already. Do you think I'm making all this reward stuff up? All right, good. It's right here. 
You can never hide your real life from God. He sees in your heart and your mind. He knows you so well that he knows the fewer hairs I have on my head. He sees everything you do, but not so with men. The significance of doing your service in secret shows the Lord that you are trusting him. Trusting him. Trusting him for the reward. You are not seeking it in this life, but you're trusting the God who is just, the God who is personal, the God who will do right by you in the time that is to come. Doing your good works in secret demonstrates you trust his divine approval rather than the human approval most people seek. I am reminded of what Paul wrote to the Corinthians about the coming judgment of Jesus Christ. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. That's the Bema seat. So each one may be recompensed, paid back, rewarded for his deeds done in the body according to all that he has done, whether good or bad. What you do here and now affects your there and then. There, one got it. Praise the Lord. Lonnie, you get a reward. You see, the Lord is totally fair. He's not like a man. He's going to pay you back fairly. He's going to reward you equitably for your service in this life. There will be no room for the Democrats they are complaining about equal pay for women. God's going to reward everyone equally, fairly, and justly. When Jesus tells us that, he's, that this is not a matter of if, but when, he means we will be rewarded. Then. That's why many of us are eager for the rapture to take place. Listen to Paul in his writing to the Ephesians. He says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for what? Good works. And that we should walk in them. Good works are what you and I as his disciples are designed to do. He has called us to live a righteous life. And then he will reward us beyond all that we could ever anticipate. What a deal. Don't you? That's better than any deal that Donald Trump could come up with. Jesus makes you a promise, and then he keeps it over and above that promise. Now, how can we apply this to our lives today? Get busy serving the Lord with the right attitude. Seek rewards. There's nothing wrong with that as long as you have a proper attitude. Do it according to the standard that God lays down in his word. Once again, it was Paul who wrote the Corinthians saying this, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Though he were rich, he became poor. Yet for your sakes he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. Why do we hold on to stuff so much? Why is it hard to let go of our money to bless other people, to support the church, to support missionaries? Why is it? You know one thing I've never figured out? Why men go into the ministry to enrich themselves? You know these guys that have their own personal airplanes, they have mansions they live in, they live like kings. They've got their rewards in the wrong place, don't they? 
Jesus became poor for our sakes, so that we might then and there become rich. Listen now, doing good works, our righteous acts include giving, but it must never be at the twisting of your arms. It must be done voluntarily and sincerely and in secret. We should willingly give, not out of a sense of duty, but out of a sense of gratitude for what God has done for us. He's called you. He's equipped you. He's given you his instructions. He wants you to live the abundant life. Now live it out fully, fully, so that you might receive a full reward when he returns. Let us pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this day. Thank you for the Lord Jesus who gave himself for us. Help us to give back this life as a living sacrifice to him. Including our giving, help us to bless others, Lord, as you have blessed us with the free gift, the free gift of eternal life. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.